You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We have a great Bloomberg intelligence strategist in here. Erica Adelberg is an MBS strategist and the reason that I find this so cool is that the Fed bought so much of these securities, right? Mortgage-backed securities. And now they're selling them off in quantitative tightening. Um, and I wonder how it's affecting the actual market that consumers access, Erica. Does it, do you see it? Because we've seen a little bit of volatility in mortgage rates, right? They went up to 5.7 and came down to 5.3. That's, I think, uh, the F... Uh, uh, the uh, the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac numbers, but bank rate maybe is different. Nonetheless, a little bit of volatility. Yeah, um, yeah. They they own an impressive amount of mortgage-backed securities. They own over two point seven trillion at this point, which is about a third of the mortgage market. So what they own really has an influence, and what they do has an influence on mortgage-backed securities, which translates into an influence on mortgage rates. They haven't technically started to sell mortgage-backed securities yet. They've mentioned job-owned, at least, that they may at some point in the future in a way that technically they don't want to disrupt the markets. But they have stopped adding them uh, in any significant size to their portfolio. And in fact, they're letting it run off. So as the paydowns and refinances come in, they're not reinvesting the full amount. And they're going to actually stop reinvesting all paydowns going forward. So far, just the, the influence of them not adding has pushed mortgage rates up to around 6%. Uh, that's partly also because treasuries have sold off in anticipation of Fed funds being pushed off, which has started to happen. But also spreads have widened in mortgage-backed securities relative to treasuries. The current coupon, which is basically what's most closely tied to the consumer rate, is up to about 140 basis points. It was as tight as 60 basis points last year. So that's eight-tenths of a percent rise just because mortgages are widening because the Fed is no longer planning to support the market. So if they sell, when they sell, they're going to sell, right? They're not just going to sit here and let them run off. I, it, I mean, there are certainly a number of Fed governors who have said that they don't believe in supporting the mortgage market in this environment and are talking about selling but for every Fed governor that says that, another one I, I heard uh, 
Chair Williams talk at a mortgage banker conference, and he's like, if, if that happens, we're going to give you a lot of notice. It's going to be pretty far in the future, and it's we're going to do it in a way that doesn't disrupt the secondary market. So, you know, I think they're kind of talking out of both sides of their mouths. I think they want to give themselves the opportunity to sell, um, but probably not going to do so right. in a size that really destroys the market, hopefully. <laughs> Erica, you know, you're witnessing a pretty historic moment here in that Matt Miller talking about mortgage rates without talking about his own mortgage. Never happens. <laughs> he likes to brag about just how, how great of a rate he got. I locked it in at three and a quarter percent. And we just, you ruined it. It's excellent. You ruined it. Um, but anyways, point of the point of that is affordability at the end of the day. And that seems to be at the core of this housing market story, especially, uh, you know, people like me who are probably not in the market for, for houses. Well, a lot of my friends already put down payments on them because they could. Um, I, I'm curious about the affordability story. How does that change? Well, it, it, you know, affordability numbers came out yesterday reflecting numbers as of the end of May. So it reflected most of the rise in mortgage rates, but not all of it. And most of the rise in home prices, but not all of it. That number is now 102.5 at 100. That means that the average median income no longer will be above the qualifying income. Below that, uh, we're, we're talking about housing market nationally being unaffordable. And believe it or not, the Housing Affordability Index as run by National Association of Realtors has never been below 100. So we are approaching historic not yet a lack of affordability in the housing market. And one of, uh, you know, if you and think- And it's palpable, by the way. I mean, because yeah. so many people I know uh, either have been priced out or have had to stretch so far that they can't afford to do anything else. Yeah, yeah one of the interesting things we're actually seeing in the Mortgage Banker Association Loan um, Application Index is that the loan sizes are decreasing while home prices we know are still mm -hmm. going up. So I think what that means is that people are compromising on the type of house or the location of the house that they want to buy. And probably that, that's a trend we might see going forward. Um, I, I've heard of other people anecdotally that, you know, finally were, their bid was finally accepted on a house in this competitive housing market, and then they can't qualify for the mortgage rate. So there's also been a big drop in locks, rate locks, uh, relative to history. All right, Erica, thanks so much for joining us. Erica Adelberg. Uh, here, she is a mortgage-backed security strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence talking to us about, I think, one of the issues that almost everyone cares about. You know, either you're in the market uh, or you want to get in the market or you're priced out of the market. Um, or like Paul Sweeney, you're happy to be out of the market and you'll <laughs> never get back in. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's get back to the markets here. We have a little bit of an undecided, uh, um, we don't really have a direction today, but we did have uh, an up week last week in the face of so many people calling a recession. Sean, Sean Snyder joins us, head of investment strategy at City U.S. Wealth Management. And Sean, um, more and more people are saying we are currently in a recession. I think um, Ken Langone recently uh added his name to that pile as well. Um, what do you think? Well, first off, thank you, Matt, and thank you, Krita, for having me on the show. Uh, you know, it, it's really interesting times. You know, I think it is, you know, normal to think that the, you know, typical technical definition is going to be correct, which is two negative quarters of economic growth, but it's not always technically right. So if we look at the actual definition, which is set by the National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, it is a period of broad economic decline across, you know, a swath of the economy over a period of at least several months. It's not two quarters of negative decline. So if we actually look at the recession uh, that occurred in 2001, the U.S. economy never experienced uh, two consecutive quarters of economic decline. And similarly, in the global financial crisis, uh, the economy technically entered a recession December 2007, but the economy didn't experience two consecutive quarters of contraction until the fourth quarter of 2008. So, you know, that is the metric people tend to watch. We had a negative 1.6% um, print in the first quarter. It looks like we're tracking, according to the Atlanta Fed, at maybe minus 1.2% in the second quarter. Um, but, you know, in those past two recessions, 2001, 2008, the consecutive monthly job losses were actually a better metric in terms of calling a U.S. recession, and we're still seeing a really quite strong labor market. And the other thing I'd say about those two negative GDP prints that we've seen that are potentially are going to see uh, are really referencing a change in private inventories. We have a glut of inventories. That's actually dragging down the GDP number. If you took out that uh, kind of anomaly being caused by the supply chain disruptions, well, then we'd actually have positive GDP. Consumer spending is still positive, and I think uh, this will likely not mark the beginning of recession. It'll probably come right. uh, later in 2023. Well, speaking of recession, I want to ask you about commodities here because we are seeing a six point, well, almost seven percent decline here in WTI. It feels like the commodities trade has been so over talked about. I mean, everyone was saying that this is how you hedge a portfolio that's just been dropping all year long. You buy a barrel of oil, you add some of those kind of contracts to your portfolio. It was the macro hedge that was supposed to work. It's not the macro hedge that's working right now. Sean, what do you do with commodities? Well, you know, we technically still have a global uh, overweight on natural resources, oil field services, and some other defensive equities like dividend growers. Um, but, you know, if you look at what's happening in the commodity space, you're seeing aluminum prices come down, copper prices come down. That is kind of a normal um, path to follow if we are indeed headed towards a recession. But you've seen oil prices, you know, up until recently hold up um, better. But again, you know, in some ways it might be a positive, right? So if oil can stay below $100 a barrel, then maybe that shaves off a couple percentage points off the headline CPI, by the end of the year. So essentially, the Fed 
is trying to cool off the economy through policy expectations, we're seeing that feed through into commodities. And in a sense, yes, those portfolio hedges that were meant to be um, you know, used as insurance aren't working right now. Mm. But it may actually be a positive in the sense that Fed policy is working, and that could help us avoid a hard landing. So it may not be completely negative. Sean, just quickly, got 30 seconds here. What do you expect from uh, earnings, earnings season? Well, I think it's going to be interesting earnings season. There seems to be a disconnect with you know investors expecting uh, 10% EPS growth in 2022, but yet we have the market down 20%. That seems quite odd. But I think energy companies are actually holding up that number. If you strip out the energy company's contribution to earnings in the second quarter, you actually have a negative earnings print of about 3.8%, I believe. So it's really important what happens to energy as far as the headline EPS. And to me, it's not so much the earnings in 2022. It's really what happens to earnings in 2023. Consensus is still looking for 8.3% headline EPS growth in Mm -hmm. 2023. But if we do enter a recession, that's going to be wrong. It's going to be negative. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Sean Snyder there. He is head of investment strategy over at City U.S. Wealth Management. Matt Miller here with Kriti Gupta, Paul Sweeney out this week. And it's his loss because Ed Price is with us, senior fellow and former British, uh, senior fellow at NYU and former British trade official. And there is a ton to talk about, um, Ed, starting with the whole gas situation. We keep getting these warnings. I think Bruno Le Maire yesterday was saying they could cut you off completely. And today, Janet Yellen um, was talking more about trying to cap uh, prices for everybody buying Russian oil, which seems to me it's like poking the bear, right? At some point, they're going to say, fine, we have strong enough, a strong enough balance sheet that we don't need to give you any oil. So right. they could just pull everything off the market. What do you think? I think we've been poking the bear, and we are poking the bear, and I wouldn't be surprised if the bear pokes us back. So you're talking about gas. I think that's that's the right indicator. I think that's behind a lot of the currency movements that we're, that we're seeing. It's so weird to see, like Jordan Rochester was on surveillance earlier, and he's talking about his Euro call uh, driven all by gas flows through Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Yeah. That's just yeah. an odd connection to make. It's odd. It's not the traditional fundamentals that, you, that you'd look at, right? Um, but I think, I think that's right. And I think that the, maybe the sort of slightly scary, slightly simpler way to think about that is that we are kind of at war with Russia right now. And I think that as that sinks in, markets are turning away from the traditional numbers and uh, gazing out of the window and thinking, okay, well, what would this look like if it really kicked off? Um, I mean, you you guys tell me if that's an exaggeration. No? No. I mean, certainly financial, right? Because um, everyone is accusing Russia of using energy resources, of weaponizing them. Right. And, of course, they're just doing that in retaliation for the sanctions that we put on them. Mm -hmm. We sanctioned them because they attacked Ukraine. So, yeah, it definitely seems like um, a Cold War. It seems like a Cold War that's heating up and becoming a potential hot war. And one of the things that I worry about is, uh, for example, we've said that we're not going to close the airspace, fine. Um, And we've said that we're not going to close the airspace because we're worried that that will be uh, considered a NATO intervention. Well, we don't have a monopoly on what constitutes a NATO intervention, do we? Because we're in a two-player game. Putin could very well turn around and say, look, I I found this thing in in the wreckage of one of my tanks, and it it says made in the USA on it. So I feel like we've already crossed some lines, and if we've we've crossed those lines, one logic is that we continue to cross them and have to continue to cross them, and this thing spirals both militarily and financially. But there's there's a certain level of exposure that continental Europe has that 
the UK does not. And I have to ask, to what extent does that almost help the UK in the face of all the other issues that it has? Yes. So um, economics is always a relative beauty contest. And I think that the post-Brexit UK will be looking a little bit better if it's not exposed to certain things directly that are going on on the continent. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, of course, of the uh, potential fiscal risk if we see another euro area crisis. Right. And of course, the war in Ukraine. That does look a bit better. However, it's not fundamentally in the UK's interest to see mm -hmm. Europe on fire. Right, we've done that twice. It, it wasn't fun. It's not good. Right. So what we really want is a is a strong uh, European economy. We want a trading partner at whatever reduced level after Brexit, but we want a trading partner that functions. And I think that if you if you go back to the aforementioned Mr. Putin, um, one definition of how he wins this war is just to continue it, is just to continue this grind so that the economic and the financial and the energy consequences uh, become ever more apparent. Well. I'm going to jump in here. I'm sorry, because I'm going to ask a question yes, that yeah. I've, kind of feels a little contrarian at the moment. I'm probably going to get a lot of Twitter heat for this. Uh -oh. But I'm curious. We've been talking about Euro-dollar parity for months now. Mm -hmm. um, should we be talking about pound parity with yes. the dollar? Yes, we should. We should. Not, not necessarily right now. Right. Okay. But uh, pound parity with the dollar is not outside the realm of Which, by the way, we have, I don't think we've ever hit in history. No, 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 no. But I don't think that it's impossible. Um, and so I think that we're going to have to go back to, again, the fundamentals, again, how we think about currency, how we think about FX markets, and really dig down into, well, what do we think is the equilibrium level for each of these currencies? And why is it that we're wrong in our sort of opening assumption every morning when we open the newspaper? They're both getting crushed by the dollar right now, and neither one is doing better than the other, which I know because... I see the euro at $1, I see the pound at 118 Euro-pound is at 85, uh, 85 cents, or is that what you call it? Pence. Pence, yes. sorry. Euro-pound okay. is at 85 pence. And I recall about five or six years ago, I was looking to buy a Ducati S4RT right. in a Sheffield dealership. Okay. And I was in Berlin, and I was waiting for the Euro-pound to uh, you know, adjust to my favor, but it was at 85 pence then as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they're both moving down in unison. Well, it, it makes sense. Right. Because, again, if, if the world is on fire, which is a, a bit of a, a bit of an exaggeration, but if the world is on fire, where do people go? They certainly go, not they, the yen. Certainly not the yen. <laughs> Although I think I think BOJ is not sweating it as bad right now because they're thinking this is this is not sustainable above two percent. I think they're looking at supply chains and thinking we need to go a bit further. Um, with our easing program, because then we might get to a sustainable 2%. Um, but yeah, so look, currencies are wild, and I, I really don't rule anything out. So for the pound here, let's go back. For the UK here broadly, we're also dealing with new leadership, mm -hmm. potentially at the helm. What kind of leadership are we talking about? What kind of risks are we talking about? It kind of seems like the Brexit controversy has, has dropped, that whoever is in charge or does end up becoming in charge is still going to become have very aggressive uh, Brexit stance. But I'm curious, what are the nuances there that we could see based on, I think we have like, how many candidates? Like six, seven? Nine, 700. I think yeah. it's 700 the last time I checked. <laughs> I think I'm in the list. Of, but it's okay. basically yeah. Rishi Sunak, right? Yeah, Rishi. Uh, and Liz Truss. Liz Truss. Well, um, the others that would cut taxes. Rishi's the conservative candidate and everybody else wants to be 
sort of a populist. Yeah, right? Hunt would cut taxes. I think I think most people would want to cut taxes, but Rishi's saying, look, we've got this inflationary problem. Uh, we have to get our arms around that first. So to your question, I think that the real the real issue right now is where does the tax policy land? How fiscally responsible or otherwise will the next PM be? So yeah. it's not really any it's not really like Labour versus Tory right now. It's yeah. one nation Tory versus and Brexit Tory. For our international audience, we should add because we have a lot of American listeners, obviously. Yes. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. We haven't actually had tax cuts in in the last three years, right? Which has been uh, counter so the contrary. to yeah, counter it's to contrarian. Their it's it, yeah, it's counterintuitive because the Conservative Party, if it stands for anything, it probably stands for lowering taxes. So right. this again, it goes back to the debate in the Tory Party right now, which is which one comes first: tax cuts or growth. And some are arguing that if you cut taxes, you get growth, and some are saying, well, we have to wait until we get growth in order to cut taxes. So if you're, you know, American audience are watching the UK and thinking about what the immediate indicator is going to be, yeah. if, if Rishi wins, you can expect more fiscal discipline. I think the big concern for Americans right now is do we end up with the same kind of rationing that you have put in place today at Heathrow? They're right. capping the flights. Capping flights. That's it's not good. difficult. That's not good. No, yeah. that, that, that's, that's very much not good. Uh, and it lobbies for building some more runways, whatever whatever the climate lobby says, right? I mean, it's just... You, and you getting want, some more employees in, right? And getting some more people in, sure. But Maybe uh, from Eastern Europe. Have you thought about boosting immigration from Eastern Europe? I think about it every morning, Matt. I think, look, if you look at the UK economy, it's like any economy. If you want growth, you want productivity, you want population, and you want per capita GDP growth as a result. Ed, Ed, thanks so much for coming in. Ed Price there, senior fellow at NYU. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight... Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Greg, thanks very much. Now, you've probably heard Elon Musk's move to terminate his deal with Twitter is set to wind up in Chancery Court in Delaware. But you may not know Musk's actions also led to a lawsuit back in May against the Tesla CEO on behalf of Twitter shareholders for the drastic decline in Twitter's stock value. Joe Katchett is the senior partner at Katchett, Petrie, and McCarthy, which, along with Botini and Botini brought the suit in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. Bloomberg Greg Jarrett in San Francisco had an exclusive interview with Kachit. They talked about the shareholder suit against Musk and Twitter. Joe, you guys actually filed a suit back on May 25th against Elon Musk, and uh, it made news at the time, but 
it seems to be taking on more prominence, more importance right now. Can you tell me about that suit? Well, it's absolutely clear that we saw at the outset where Musk was going. We allege in the complaint that uh, much of what he did was simply to drive the price down. Uh, We allege that he did this on purpose. He wanted to pick up Twitter at a cheap price. And you saw what happened to these people that own Twitter stock. They all lost about 25, 30% of the value. And it was clear from the outset, it's just amazing that uh, everybody didn't see what was going on. Many people did see it, stood by and watched the whole scenario play out. Uh, As we allege, we we don't think, we don't think uh, the facts will show that he had a full intention at the outset to buy it at the price he offered. Uh, The business about fake accounts, uh, he knew all about it. As a matter of fact, Twitter did have fake accounts. They just settled a major lawsuit a year ago over the fake accounts. He was fully aware of all of this. Uh, This is one of the great, great American Wall Street stories of what's going on with our, our stock market and the failure to be brutally candid with you, the failure of our uh, SEC to uh, protect people investing in the market these days. Joe, how many shareholders are you representing, and and are you asking for anything in this lawsuit? Yeah, we're asking that Twitter go after Musk and pick up that $1 billion penalty for not going through with the deal. Further, we're asking that Musk be liable for the downfall of that stock, the 25% that went down. It involves millions of dollars. And by the way, just so we're clear, a lot of these shareholders came from uh, pension funds, nonprofits, things of this nature. So it's uh, it's an extraordinary case that the SEC should have been on. What effect do you think, if any, the uh, Chancery Court in Delaware will have on your suit? Uh, They're taking it there to figure out exactly what to do about this. And do you have any prediction of an outcome? Uh, Well, we know one thing. Uh, We know there's going to be a wild courtroom fight, whether it is in the Chancery Court or whether it is in the Northern District of California, where Twitter is homed, we'll see downstream right away. I found it very interesting in your lawsuit that you were talking about his leverage of Tesla stock in order to be able to back a loan and the indication that he was only able to leverage up to, what, 25% of the value of the Tesla stock in order to be able to complete the loan to make the purchase of Twitter, and that that had something to do or a lot to do with him wanting to back out of this in order to drive the price down. Can you can you outline that for me? Yeah, you know his holding in Tesla, and uh, Tesla was all part of the deal. He wanted to use that as a, uh, a leverage, if you will. I shouldn't say leverage. He wanted to use it as the basis for getting the money to buy Twitter. And it was chaos. Both uh, Tesla shareholders suffered, Twitter shareholders suffered, Everybody suffered, as we allege in the complaint, through whatever you want to call it. You want to call it arrogance? You want to call it just flexing your uh, your richest man in the world uh, muscle? Or whatever you want to call it, uh, it's something that our, our capitalist system can't allow to happen. Too many people are affected by this. 
too many pension funds have been hammered. Uh, too many average people on the street that have money invested in the stock market uh, were taken advantage of. And this is a good example for the government to get off their rear end and take a look at what's happening out there, because this is happening in many different situations. This one happens to be the epitome of arrogance. How long is this courtroom winding road going to be between your lawsuit, the the uh, chancery court in Delaware, and th- there's got to be a whole lot more happening here? It'll be several months, but uh, it is going to be chaos in the uh, in the courtroom. Uh, wherever it ends up, uh, it will certainly be an interesting uh, issue for all of America to take a look at. Greg Jarrett with that interview. Uh, wait, is Greg with us right now? I am. Ah, Greg, so uh, wrap it up for us. Um, what do you think, considering what we've learned in the past few days? I mean, how's this going to turn out? Oh, I, I've got to tell you, the Kachet has a, a great track record. You may remember he won $3.3 billion jury verdict against Lincoln Savings and Loan and Charles Keating. He also represented former CIA agent Valerie Plame against Dick, Dick Cheney et al. in 2005. And he's inflamed over this. I, when I talked with him, uh, he went a lot further. <laughs> he, he, he pretty much alleges outright stock manipulation. He says every time... You hear something from Elon Musk, the stocks move wildly. And, you know, he and his clients speculate that that's for the purpose simply of making more money. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. And I think also something that we're all watching there, these sort of not secret secrets um, that we could all agree on. But no one would want to allege that sort of thing, certainly not on uh, public radio broadcast. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.